You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Welcome again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you've joined us this morning to worship and to study God's Word. Please open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans. You can think Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all the guys' names, then two books to the right. So Acts and then Romans. That's where we're at. And we've been studying through the book of Romans in our study, which we've called Saving Grace. And now we have worked our way all the way from the beginning. We are now in chapter 8, which is really, and today we really reach kind of a crescendo in the book. It's one of the best sections. We're privileged and excited to study this section this morning. We're going to begin by reading it together. We're going to begin in verse 31 for our reading today. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or the sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this glorious truth that there is nothing in heaven or on earth, there is no power that is able to separate us from your love. Lord, thank you for that promise, and we thank you for this truth that we are going to study today. Lord, as we study it, would you give us insight? Would you help us to understand it? Would you help us to apply it to our lives? Lord, we want to be transformed by you from the inside out, so we pray that you would do that work today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever seen those stickers that they put on boxes for you know, cargo or shipping or, you know, when they send stuff in the mail and it says, fragile, handle with care. Fragile, handle with care. And maybe sometimes you felt like getting a roll of those stickers so that you can stick one on yourself every day as you go out in the world. I'm fragile, handle me with care. A friend of mine recently was telling the story of how her husband actually came home one day and he had cut out from a box, he had cut out the cardboard and he had hung it on a string around his neck one of these signs that said fragile handle with care see he had had a pretty rough day at work and he was coming home hoping to find a refuge hoping to get a break if he could you know because the world can be kind of a harsh place sometimes and maybe some of you can relate to that you're like yeah I know exactly what that's like I wish somebody would handle me with care I feel fragile sometimes you know I remember when I was a kid and we would play games and so we play a lot of fighting games And people would always choose superpowers, like everybody would choose superpowers and we'd fight. But the ultimate superpower that you could have was to be invincible, right? And inevitably, what would happen, even like now when I play with my kids, inevitably what happens, somebody gets stabbed with a lightsaber or with a sword or something, and they play the invincibility card. All of a sudden, they announce, oh, actually, I forgot to tell you, I'm invincible, See, what happens, the reason we want to be invincible is because suddenly, no matter what happens to you, it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't take you out of the game. It doesn't end you. It might hurt. It might be a temporary setback, but that's all it is. It's temporary, and it's just a setback. But that's just pretend, right? I mean, that's just kids. how kids play. That's not real life, is it? 
mean in real life, we're fragile and we must be handled with care. I mean, that's how it really is, isn't it? Well, what we see here at the end of Romans chapter 8 is that the gospel actually gives us this incredible power. It sets us free in the sense that it makes you essentially invincible. See, when you really consider what Jesus Christ has done for you, when you really consider the gospel, what you realize is that if this is true, if all this stuff we're talking about is true, and by the way, it is, if this is true, and it is, then what it means is that in essence, you are invincible. There's nothing that can happen to you that can destroy you, right? There's nothing that can happen to you that can take you out of the game or end you. Yes, there are things which may hurt. Yes, there are things which may be temporary setbacks, but in Christ, that's all they are. They're just temporary, and they're just setbacks. And what these verses here in Romans chapter 8 tell us is this, that in an uncertain world, the gospel gives us a security which enables us to face our present situations and anything the future holds with incredible confidence. The title of today's message is More Than Conquerors. This book, The Letter to the Romans, it's a letter which was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians who were in Rome. And his purpose in writing it was to help them understand the core teachings of Christianity, to help them apply those things to their lives. Now, when Paul writes about hardships and difficulties, here's what you need to understand. You need to understand that he's not writing this from some ivory tower. He's not writing it from the comfort of his mansion where he lives in the lap of luxury. No, Paul the Apostle knew difficulty and suffering and hardship in a way that many of us probably never will. And so when he talks about it, he talks about it from experience. See, let me give you a quick rundown, just real brief, about the Apostle Paul and some of the things that we know about him and the things that he went through. First of all, we know that Paul was beaten up many times, right? One time, he was even beaten up so bad that he was left for dead because they literally thought that they had killed him, so they stopped beating him and left him there. And, and God saved his life, but that's how badly he was beaten. And that didn't just happen once. That was multiple times. Another thing we know about the Apostle Paul is that he seemed to suffer from some kind of chronic ailment or illness or maybe some kind of chronic pain. He describes it as his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. There are lots of theories. Some people believe that he had a problem with his eyes and caused him a lot of pain. But it says this, we do know, that he asked God to take this thorn in the flesh away from him on multiple occasions, and God chose not to take it away from him despite his prayers. Another thing we know about the Apostle Paul is that every indicator would seem to point to the fact that at one point in his life, he was probably married and his wife left him. He was probably married and his wife left him. And here's why. Because at one point, Paul alludes to the fact that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious council, the ruling council for the Jews. And one of the requirements to be on the Sanhedrin was that you had to be married. And so if Paul was there, then we got to conclude that he was probably married. Yet by the time that we see him in the book of Acts, he's a missionary planting churches. By the time he's writing these letters, we know that he's definitely not married. And so it would seem that we just put the pieces together that Paul was married at one time and his wife left him. In fact, he writes in 1 Corinthians about what Christians should do if their spouses leave them because they have become Christians. And, and it seems that what he's writing there is in a way almost autobiographical. He's writing about what he himself did and has done. So Paul was no stranger to pain. That's the point. He was no stranger to pain and hardship and difficulty. One time he was in a shipwreck. One time he got bit by a poisonous snake. Paul was lied about. He was betrayed by his friends. Some of the people who hurt him were Christians. And so that means that Paul, he, they were church people, right? He knew what it was like to be hurt by believers, Christians, church people. And yet none of these things took away his faith in God. None of them made him give up on this idea of 
church and the body of Christ. None of these things took away his faith in the gospel. If anything, these hardships did what they made him do is cling to the gospel even more. And the question is, how could Paul go through all the things that he went through and not lose his faith in God? How could he do that? And the reason is because Paul was hoping in something bigger. He was hoping in something better than just having a comfortable life and having all of his problems fixed here and now. Now think about it. The people who attacked the Apostle Paul, maybe they would have come to him and they would have said, Paul, we're going to kill you. And Paul, what would Paul say? He would be like, okay, I guess that's fine with me because for me to die is gain. It's just going to bring me closer to my Lord, my master. It's going to be bring me closer to the glory and I'll get to leave the pain of this world. Then go ahead, do your worst. And they say, fine, well, if that's what you want, then we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you live. And he'd be like, fine, for me to live is Christ. Then that's great. And he said, well, then you know what? Not only are we going to let you live, we're going to torture you. And you'd be like, well, you know what? I don't consider these present sufferings to be anything worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to me. And they say, well, well, then we're going to lock you up in prison. He's like, well, fine. Actually, that's good, too, because I've been really busy. You give me a chance to write some of these letters I've been meaning to write. And uh, while I'm at it, I'll just convert all your prison guards. The question is, what do you do with somebody like that? He, he's indomitable. He's, he's unstoppable. He's unshakable. He's invincible. You see, the worst thing you could throw at him, it can touch his body, but it can't touch his soul. It can't take away his source of hope. And do you know this, that the key to having joy in the moment is having hope in the future? Do you know that? The key to having joy in the moment is having hope in the future. You know, the researchers say that the number one cause of suicide is the sense or the feeling of hopelessness. See, but if you have a hope that no one can take away from you, that nothing in this world can even touch, then you can have joy even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. And it's the sense of knowing that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. That's what we talked about last week, that as Christians, we're the only people in the world who can say this with true authenticity and sincerity and, and true conviction because it's the core of our doctrine is that the best is yet to come. See, the thing is that sometimes, though, when you're in the thick of it, like when it's all coming down and things are hard and things are difficult, when you're in the midst of it, it can be hard to see that. It can be hard to feel that, that the best really is yet to come. And so the question, which we're now addressing here in today's text, is this. How can you be confident and secure even in the face of hardship and difficulty? How can you be confident and secure even in the face of hardship and difficulty? And here in this section, we're given three reasons why in Christ you can be confident and secure no matter what you are facing. I'm going give, to give you those three, then we're going to walk through them, okay? So number one, you can be confident knowing that God will finish what he started. That's verses 29 and 30. Next, you can be confident knowing that God is for you. You see that in verses 31 and 32. Thirdly, you can be confident knowing that God's love never fails. That's the end of the chapter. So let's talk about that first one. You can be confident knowing that God will finish what he started. So we left off last week looking at this, this uh, glorious, incredible truth that's found in verse 28 where it says this, For we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. And what this verse tells us is that in Christ, your suffering is never wasted. Do you know that? It's a very hopeful thing, isn't it? That your suffering is never wasted in Christ. God promises that he will use even the bad things, even the difficult things, for our good. So I heard the story of this pastor uh, who in his office, he had a tapestry or, or some kind of needlework. And this tapestry was hanging on his wall, but it was hung backwards, right? So that the front side was facing the wall and the back side 
was facing out towards people who would see it. And when people would come into his office, you know, they'd tell him about what was going on in their lives uh, and their difficulties. What he would say to them is, look at this tapestry on the wall. Isn't it beautiful? What do you think of it? And inevitably, they would always be like, well, no, uh, not really, right? It looks like nothing to me. It makes no sense. It's just a bunch of knotted threads. It's just a bunch of loose ends. I mean, even the colors don't line up. It just looks like a mess and nothing. And what the pastor would do, of course, he'd get up, he'd turn that tapestry around, and he'd take it off the wall and he'd show it to them. And the front, of course, was this beautiful scene that had the words written on it, God is love. And, and they would realize at that point that, that on the one side, it was just a jumble, it was just a mess, it didn't make any sense. But if you looked at it from the other side, then it was a beautiful pattern that God had been making, right? And so the point is this, that that's what it's like for us. On this side of eternity, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense. It just looks like loose ends and, and knotted threads. And, and the thing is, though, that when we get to the other side, it's going to make sense. See, we're going to see it. We're going to realize the pattern. We're going to realize the design, the, the, the masterful work, the good that God was bringing out of all of those things. Now, maybe you say, well, that's a nice thought, Nick, but how can I be sure? How can I know that that's actually going to happen? I mean, it's a nice thought. Yeah, but how do I know it's not just kind of pie in the sky, you know, just nicety that you're telling me? Well, here's how you can know. Look at verse 29 and 30. Here's what it says. For those whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So in the midst of trials, difficulties, pain, hardships, suffering, sometimes it feels like, God, where are you in all of this? But here's why you can be confident and totally secure no matter what is happening in your life. Because God will finish what he has started in you. God will finish what he has started in you. That's the point of this, this, these two verses. The book of Hebrews calls God the author and the finisher of our faith. Now, I don't know about you, but I have several projects around my house that I've begun, but I haven't yet finished, right? There's a lot of unfinished projects around my house. But our God, he's not like that. He's a, he's a beginner, but he's also a finisher. He finishes. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul tells us, I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ, the day that is coming. This hope that we have, the day when the hope that we have will be fully realized, when it be fully realized, when we stand before God and everything that's wrong is undone and all things are made right finally, fully, and for good. And until that day comes, though, we live now with this assurance, with so much confidence that God will see us through and that he's working all things together for good. And the reason we can be confident is because of this, this list of things that we have here. You could call it the unbreakable chain. It's a chain of events that's completely unbreakable. It's the chain of events of God's saving work, which he does in our lives. And we're told about it in verses 29 and 30. There are five actions that are listed here which describe the process by which God saves us. Here's what they are. He foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, and he glorified you. And what's important to notice about this process, notice this, it began in the past, and it continues on into the future. This unbreakable chain of events, which began in eternity past and carries on until eternity future, it's God's work, not our work. And so whereas you might not be great at finishing things, he is. 
and he will see it through to completion. So let's consider each of these words in this unbreakable chain. Number one, foreknew. So God in his omniscience, he knows the future, and he knows everyone who's ever lived. He knows them, and, and he knows everyone who has ever lived. He has seen them. He knows what they'll do. He knows what they're like. But here's the difference. See, there are different kinds of knowledge. For example, I know algebra in a different way than I know my wife. And that different way is that I actually understand algebra. See, um, <laughs> no, the difference is that I have a, a relationship with my wife. I have a relationship with her. See, it's, the one, it's one thing to know facts and information. It's another thing to know someone personally, right? So, like, I know a lot about Peyton Manning, but I don't know Peyton Manning personally. When it comes to my kids, though, I know them personally. So it's a different kind of knowledge that we're talking about here. So when it says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, it's not just talking about God knowing things about somebody or knowing what somebody will do. It's talking about personal knowledge. And this is the kind of knowledge where, like, where Jesus says that to some people at the end of time, he will tell them, I never knew you. Of course, he knew about them. He knew everything that they would do, but he didn't have a relationship with them. And so this word foreknew, it means, you could think of it in these terms, think of it as foreloved, foreloved, right? It means that God set his love on you before time began, before you did anything to earn it or not earn it. God placed his love on you. And here's why that matters. Because what if there's a time in the future when you definitely don't earn God's love, when you definitely don't deserve God's love? And, and of course that, that happens. Is he going to stop loving you? No, because you didn't earn it in the first place. You see, his love for you isn't based on you earning it, or it's based on him giving it. Second, and that's, that's why it says, for example, 1 John chapter 4, it says, we love because he first loved us. He's the initiator. We're the responders. Secondly, predestined. Think about that word, predestined. What does it mean? It means to set a destination ahead of time. It means to make a plan ahead of time, to set a horizon and move towards it. God, because of his love for us, has set a destination for us to be with him in glory and to be conformed to the image of Jesus. See, that's the good. It says there in verse 29, this is the good that God is working towards in our lives to make us like Jesus. See, my desire for my life, if I was to call the shots, it would usually just be that God would make me comfortable every day and fix all my problems. But God says to me, no, Nick, you know what? I've got something better than that for you. I've got something greater than that. I am going to work in you to make you into someone great, to something great. I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to make you wise like Jesus. I'm going to work into you to make you loving like Jesus, noble like Jesus, true, joyful, strong, and good like Jesus. See, there are things that happen in my life that certainly work against my plan to be comfortable and to have all my problems fixed, but they work beautifully in God's plan to conform me into the image of his Son. Next, the next word is that we are called called, it insinuates that there's an invitation. It means to be beckoned in, to be brought in. Justified, this is what we've talked about so much here in Romans, so I won't belabor it, but it's a, it's a legal term. It's when some, a judge pronounces your status and then pounds the gavel, and it's done. It means to be declared righteous because of the work of Jesus on your behalf. And finally, glorified. To be glorified is this state of having all sin and imperfection eradicated, it means to be in this perfect state of body and soul. And out of this whole list, this is the one that's perhaps the most surprising. 
it would be included in the list. And here's why, because this is something that we have not yet experienced. I mean, you guys look nice and all, but you don't look that nice, right? Like, you're going to be better. You're not yet glorified. I'm not yet glorified. This is something which still lies in the future for us. But here's the deal. It's talked about in the past tense, isn't it? So we talked about this last week in verse 18 through 23, what this glory is. It's that state of perfection that we long for, that we move forward into when everything will be made right. Not just other things, but when we ourselves will be made right. And here's what's so crazy. Again, this word is in the past tense. Even though it's something which is still in the future for us to experience, it's used here in the past tense. And why? What does that mean? Here's why. Because from God's point of view, it's a sure thing. It's as good as done. He, he's going to see you through. You haven't gotten there yet, but it's as good as done as far as he's concerned. And one writer, I loved, he put it this way. He said, this word, glorified in the past tense, this is the most daring statement of assurance in the entire New Testament. See, this unbroken chain of events through which God saves people, if you are anywhere in this process, here's what you can know. You can be assured that God is going to finish what he started in you. How can you be sure that you're going to go to heaven? Here's why. Because God finishes what he started. How can you be sure when you're going through something difficult that God hasn't abandoned you, that he's still there for you, that he's still working all things together for your good? Here's how. Because if God has started this process in your life, it's an unbreakable chain. He's going to see it through to completion. It brings us to our second point, a reason we can be confident. You can be confident knowing that God is for you. By verse 31, Paul, he's on a roll, right? He's excited. He's getting worked up. And he says, you know, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. See, when we started the book of Romans, for those first few chapters, we were talking a lot about the guilt of the human race that we have before God. And it's true, right? We, we are guilty. We've fallen short. We have not earned God's favor. We deserve judgment for our sins. But if you were to stop there, if you were to stop there in those first few chapters, you might come to the conclusion that God is against you, that, he, that he's upset with you, that he finds you annoying and a nuisance. But the good news of the gospel is that God didn't stop there. He continued on. And the reason that you can know that God is for you and not against you is because of what Jesus did for you. You remember, this is how we know that God loves us. It says in Romans chapter 5 that God gave his son for us. There's no greater love than this, Jesus said, than that someone would give his life for his friends. And that is what he did, and that is who we are. See, without a doubt, he is for you. He is fighting for you. He's working all things together for good to see you into glory. If you ever doubt it, if you're ever unsure whether or not God loves you, here's what you need to do. You need to look to the cross where royal blood was shed for you, where the king of heaven left his heavenly throne to take a crown of thorns for you, where the king of heaven traded his glory and he was born as a, as a needy, helpless baby. He was mistreated. He was humiliated. He was executed in order to bring you life and to bring you glory. That's how much he loves you. There's the proof right there. God is for you, not against you. And if he loves you, if he's for you, that gives you the strength to be okay if other people don't love you, to be okay if other people aren't nice to you, if they don't accept you, even if they oppose you. If Satan himself comes against you, this gives you the strength to be okay, you, to know that you're going to be okay because God is for you. You can face this life with so much confidence knowing that he is for you. See, here's the thing. If you focus on your sin and your guilt primarily, 
it'd be easy to think that God is against you. That's what so many people do. That we focus on how messed up we are. We focus on how we fail and how we have failed or, or what we did or what other people did to us and, and why we need God's grace rather than the implications of the grace which he has given us in Jesus. Think about Moses. I was thinking about Moses this week. So his name Moses, it means literally drawn out. Why? Because you remember that he was drawn out of the Nile River. He was saved from the river. And again, not just any river, it's the Nile River. And there's one thing I know about zoology, and that is this, that in the Nile River, there are crocodiles, right? So he got saved, not just from water, he got saved from crocodiles, but not just from that. He was also saved, remember, his people were enslaved, and there was a genocide happening. And so he was saved from being killed in this genocide. And so his name, Moses, it speaks of his deliverance. His name, Moses, drawn out, it was given to him because he was rescued from the river, not because he was put into the river. See, in other words, Moses' name defined him not by his difficulties, but by his deliverance. I'm going to say that again. Moses' name defined him not by his difficulties, but by his deliverance. And the same is true for you in Christ. In Christ, you are not defined by your difficulties or by your dysfunctions, but you are defined by your deliverance. You've been given a new name and a new identity. And that is really key. That is really important for us to get because it's really easy for us to get stuck and fixated on the bad things that we've done or the bad things that have happened to us. It's really easy to focus on the hurts that we have or the bad things that have happened to us. And what can happen is that we allow ourselves to, we allow our difficulties to define us. And maybe you focus so much on the bad things that, that you've done or that you still do, and you define yourself by your dysfunctions. It's easy for us to define ourselves by our difficulties or by our dysfunctions. But if we do that, we tend to think, it's easy for us to think that God is actually against us. I mean, look at who I am. Look at what I do. Of course he's against me. But just as Moses was drawn out, and his name means drawn out, do you know this, that you have been called out? Do you know that the word for church in Greek that's in, used in the New Testament, it's the word ekklesia. That word ek means out. Ecclesia, it means to be called. So it means to be called out. The word for church literally means ones who are called out. God loves you and is so for you. He is so for you so much that he called you out of darkness and into his light. Royal blood was shed for you. You can have so much confidence knowing that God is for you. Look at what it says in verse 32. This is interesting. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, if God didn't withhold his son from you, then why would he withhold anything else from you? Anything that you need, anything that would be good for you. And of course, that brings up a natural question, right? Because uh, there have been tons of times when I prayed for something and I didn't get the thing I was praying for. I wasn't asking for bad things. I wasn't asking for silly things. I wasn't asking for, for selfish things. I I've prayed for people who were sick and they got better. But I've also prayed for people who are sick and they didn't get better. Right? Like I prayed for, for God to provide something and he provided it. But I've also prayed for God to provide something and he didn't provide it. And so how do I make any sense of that? Well, well check out what it says in Psalm 84, verse 11. It says this, for the Lord, is, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. If in Christ I'm righteous, then no good thing will he withhold from me. And so if I know 
that God can do all things. And Romans 8.32 says that not only can God do everything, but he's also willing to help me in my needs and in the things that are good for me. Well, then that means that I can actually trust in God's loving providence. In other words, if I pray for something and God says no, then I can trust and rest in the fact that that thing, he must know in his providence that it's not good for me, at least not for me, or at least not right now. And I can trust in his goodness and his loving providence in my life. I I think John Owen, the, the Puritan writer, put it very well and very succinctly when he said this, everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends, and nothing can be needful that he withholds. Now, it's not always easy to believe that in the moment. But when you really take hold of this understanding, what it does, it enables you to to go through the ups and downs of this life with so much security and so much confidence. That brings us to our final point, and that's this. You can be confident and secure knowing that God's love never fails. See, verse 33, uh, it says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is sitting at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. In Christ, you can be completely secure. You can also be absolutely confident. See, you've already been tried in the court of heaven, and there's no double jeopardy. The gavel has been struck. The only one who could condemn you is Jesus. And look at what he's doing. He's interceding on your behalf. So no matter how you might feel about these things on any given day or any given moment, understand this. It's out of your hands. And that's good news because it's in his hands. It's not in my hands. It's in his hands. It depends on him, not on me. That's why we can be confident and secure. Verse 35 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? He's giving a list of all the difficulties and trials we might face in this life. And the answer to this question is found in verse 37. He says, no, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The question he's asking here is essentially this. Is there anything that can make God stop loving me? Is there anything that's going to cause God to stop loving me? You say that God loves me, but how do I know that he's going to keep loving me? Is there anything that might make him stop loving me? And the answer it gives us here is an emphatic no. See, our God has, if God has placed his love on you, once he has done that, there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can make him stop doing it. That's what he says in verse 38, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What that means is that you are forever secure in his love. See, our confidence is not in our love for him It's in his love for us. You know that? Our confidence is not in how tightly you are holding on to him. Your confidence is in this, that he's holding on to you ever so tightly. I came across this poem that says it so beautifully. Listen to this. Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold on thee. In this alone rejoice with all thy mighty grasp of me. And so in conclusion, know that the point of this section is simply this. In an uncertain world... The gospel gives us a security which enables us to face our present situations and anything else that this life holds with incredible confidence. We are more than conquerors 
because God turns everything, even suffering, even death itself, into good for our sake in Jesus. So whatever difficulties you might be facing today, I want you to do this. Read this section and then reread this section and just let these truths wash over you and let them sink in deep. See, there's a richness and a fullness of life that God wants to bring you into. There's a confidence that God wants you to live this life with. And so my prayer for you today is that you would take hold of that confidence in a whole new way, that you would live in a whole new way because of it. So let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to thank God for what he's done uh, for us and that great confidence that we have in him. Would you please join me by standing and praying? Lord, we thank you for this great truth of the gospel. We thank you for the fact, Lord, that in you we are absolutely secure and we can be totally confident. But I pray for anyone here today who says, you know what, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian. I don't know if any of this even applies to me. Lord, I pray for those of us here today who would say that. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't leave this place without having finally come across that line and said, yes, Lord, I receive your grace. I thank you. Lord, for your work in my life, this unbreakable chain and the fact that you're going to see me through, you're going to work all things for good. Thank you, Lord, that we can have this confidence in you. May we live in this confidence today and every day from here on out, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 